I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reservations. We are your hosts. I'm Rain Whalen. And I'm the other guy. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you should do a new intro each episode. I don't know. I'm and not this that is clever. It's only episode two of season two. Yeah. I don't so. know. I'm not that clever. <laughs> anyway, I'm Jeremy or whatever. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, like we mentioned last week, this episode is going to be about the 1971 film uh, from director Stanley Kubrick. Um, what was this movie in his career? Like, it was his, like, third, fourth? Oh, no. Not even close. Because um, you got to remember, he did stuff in the 50s. You know, oh, he had yeah, Paths right. of Glory. He had The Killing. He had 2001. He had Spartacus. 2001 was after? Before. Before? Really? Yeah. It came out in 1966. 68? I'm going to fact check you now. Okay. Because that doesn't sound came in, right. Came out in 1968. I know it came out before this one did. Are you positive? Yes. Would you stake money on it? Yes. 100%? Yes. Okay, let's, let's find out. Okay. Where, where the fuck is it? I want to see his fucking... Okay. Let's see. So it might be his fifth, I guess. No! You were right. I know. 68. Yep. And then this is 71. Yep. Anyway, it's a clockwork orange. Yeah. <laughs> I wish this was a visual medium because you would have saw the lack of anxiety on my face while you were looking that up because I knew exactly when it came out. But yes, um, so if anyone doesn't know about this film, which I've found out a lot of people really younger than us don't really know about this film. They will eventually. Um and what's just so crazy because I was doing a little bit more like trivia searching after I rewatched the movie again last night and you know it's like a culturally significant movie yeah. now mm-hmm. you know um, even I mean even in 1971 it was a very significant and critical success you yeah. know I'm agreeing with you. Oh, okay. No, you, I mean, you're right. You looked at me like you're running out of steam with that sentence. No, though. I mean, it's fine. I mean, <laughs> now you're doing great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a super important film, especially, you know, for, you know, a studio like Warner Brothers to say, hey, yeah, you can do this adaptation. That's fine. And especially you know? with what the movie actually is. Right. Which, you know, I was talking to someone about it to, uh, yesterday. No. Yeah, yesterday. And, um, you know, they, they're a big fan of The Shining. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they hadn't seen the movie yet. And, uh, A Clockwork Orange. And um, I was like, well, to put it simply, it's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> but in the sense of what the subject matter is. I mean, the book is more so. And yeah, we'll that's get what it, I've heard. We'll the get book- into that because I have a few um, changes they had to make. Uh, to to make it filmable, yeah. Um, because a lot of stuff is too terrible to film, right? You mean to tell me the um, the rape scene was wasn't that hard to film? No, because well, the potential rape scene. They be, didn't actually rape 
the girl. Well, I mean, in the narrative, yes, they did, but in real life, no, they didn't. Of course. Well, but, yeah. No, no, yeah, no. Um, that's what I'm saying. No, because she's an adult. So. Um, I apologize for all the crinkling, everyone. Um, so yeah, no, that's not unfilmable because she's an adult woman. So yeah, uh, not not a not a child. So because um, <laughs> if you remember, and I know we're just starting right into it, which is fine with me. Um, in the scene where he's at the record store, right, mm-hmm. and it's falling, he's got that purple coat on, and he's got his uh, walking stick, and you know, yeah. they're, the camera's just. You know, walking backwards as he's walking forwards and we're following him around the record store. Mm-hmm. And he comes across those two women, right? Right. And this is where we get that sped up sex scene at the <laughs> at his apartment. Well, in the book, they're 10 years old. Oh. And he drugs them and takes them back to his apartment. Oh. So, well, then. Uh, good for Stanley for changing that. Now, in the novel, uh, Alex is 15. Yeah. Uh, when the book starts, obviously 17 when he gets out of jail, right? Yeah. So. I, yeah, with this, he's portrayed more like 17, 18. And I, well, I listened to the to the audio commentary, which is why I have three pages of notes in front of me. <laughs> and uh, Malcolm McDowell said that, you know, he just never thought about how old he was supposed to be. You know, it doesn't really matter. No. You know, to him, it couldn't matter any less how old he is. Um, but in the book, he's 15. And in the book, he doesn't have a last name. So right. uh, Malcolm McDowell came up with uh, Delange. Well, because I read somewhere that like isn't in the book they call him Alex the Large. Nope. No. Nope. Huh. No, that was Malcolm McDowell's joke. Um, yeah. So he. Uh, yeah, Alex yeah. the Large. Yeah, and I've got a lot. Of, <laughs> I mean, we'll get into it. But there's a lot, a lot of stuff in my my rewatch that I was like, oh man, poor poor Michael McDowell had to deal with that. No, he loved every minute of it. Really? He loved being in this movie. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, only a couple of times he was uncomfortable. You know, he had a he got a blood clot. Uh, oh from shit! When he's still in that institution, they're they're testing their their experiment, right? Where right. it's like a stage and all those doctors and all, you know, even the police officers there and they're watching it like it's a play, right? So like, so when he's being, being berated, he got a blood clot? No, uh, when the guy, after berating him, steps on his chest uh-huh. with his heel, it dug into his rib cage and gave him a blood clot. Oh, so. shit. Yeah, he's like, it, I mean, it's, it's fine now, obviously, but, you well, know, yeah. a couple of days later, he like passed out and they took him to the emergency room and he had a blood clot. So well, yeah, because if that would have made it to his brain, he would have died. Yeah, and the um, the scene in the field where um, his droogs now police officers shove him in the in that tank. Uh huh. Right. There was an oxygen tank for him in there. Okay. Uh, which is why they could keep him under for so long, but it was so cold. Right. Yeah. Um, they didn't want the water to steam, and so they had to keep it. You know. Outside temp, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't put warm water in it. But as he was watching it, Malcolm McDowell goes, oh, I guess there is a little steam. I guess I came off my jacket. Because, well, you know, his jacket is warmer than the water. So once it hits, it steams, right? Mm-hmm. And, but he's like, nah, dude, it was super cold in there. <laughs> it was it was like wintertime. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. So we did just jump into it, guys. So uh, now we're going to take it back and explain what is this movie. <laughs> Because um, I was reading that, like, someone was saying that it's, like, not necessarily quintessential Stanley Kubrick, but it's it fits perfect in his genreless movies. Yeah. Because I wouldn't call it a drama. 
No, but you know, it's it's more of a black comedy than a drama anyway. Oh, yeah. But um they were discussing that Kubrick doesn't make the same movie over and over. Mm-hmm. He just does it in the same style over and over. So that's why we can he's a true auteur because he doesn't choose the same stories to tell all the time. Right. But he does it in the same way every time. Right. And, and so that's why we can pick out that's a Stanley Kubrick movie. Right. I mean, and, and, and you know, and you kind of like laying out his filmography a little bit. You know, he did Spartacus, you know, a Roman genre. John, well, you know, and I would say that drama. the first quote unquote Kubrickian, right? Yeah. This, this like an actual Kubrick movie. The first one was probably 2001. Uh, yeah. And because before that, it was like Dr. Strangelove was before that. Oh, and that's shit, really that's not right. quite, you know, that's not what you think when you think Kubrick. That was like, <clears throat> I mean, it's brilliant. I've seen it a bunch of times. But you're gonna hate me with this comparison, and I know you are. I already do. Um, so, would you say when he did Doctor Strangelove, it was when he like much like Wes Anderson in his early films, he was experimenting with what he how he wanted to do his films. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Because, oh, yeah, because I know you don't like Wes Anderson. Well, it's not that I don't like him. I just think it's hipster nonsense. Not to say there's anything wrong with hipster nonsense. I'm saying it's not for me. Dude, we just lost half our audience. Right. Good oh, thing we no. still have Joel Schumacher. Yeah, at least we got Joel. There's no way Joel's watching uh, <laughs> Wes I mean, Anderson movies. I mean, we, we shouted out why well, I did The Lost Boys, so you know he's definitely listening to season two now. Yeah, that's true, because you did mention Lost Boys, so he's on board. <laughs> but, um, you know... <laughs> Okay, you always do this all the time, so I'm going to do it for one sidebar. Okay. okay? I saw the trailer uh, for Taika Waititi's uh, Jojo Rabbit. Dude, that looks fucking hilarious. And at first, when it opened, I was like, is this a Wes Anderson movie? Because it kind of looked like that lighthearted Wes Anderson sort of yeah. type thing, and with a subject matter that he would probably do. Well, I mean, but he, but see. <sighs> anyway, nope, stop it. Yeah, okay. no, so. I love Wes, and okay. Anyway, moving on. So, so no, I, I I wouldn't be able to answer that. I've honestly never seen a Wes Anderson movie, so okay. I don't I don't know. And the only reason why I think I'm so hesitant is because the people who like it like it so much that it ruins it for me. Because it's what Doctor Strangelove? No, um, Wes Anderson. That's oh, why okay. I was you know that's oh. why I don't I say I don't like Wes Anderson. I have no business saying that because I've never seen a movie of his. I'm just saying people have ruined it for me. Anyway. Dr. Strangelove is amazing. Okay. <laughs> but it's not a Kubrickian movie, right? Okay, well, it's not that specific style. Well, that's what I was saying. Like, the, Would you say that's that was Kubrick really testing how he wanted to make his movies and how it's, he... It's possible, but not really probable because, you know, at that time he was probably still, you know, having to, to shoot things the way that, like... I wouldn't say under studio influence. Right. But it but also... the way the producers wanted him to yeah, shoot. Yeah, and it also wasn't his screenplay every time. So That's true. So he can't just do things the way he wants. This movie, A Clockwork Orange, is his first solo screenplay. Right. And it's also the closest he's ever gotten uh, to doing a perfect adaptation. This is the most yeah, faithful adaptation. Which, which I would say is so crazy before we really get into what this film is about. I think it's so crazy that... Yeah, because I read that too, that it was a very close adaptation. 
Because then, you know, nine years later, he did The Shining. Which is the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I was watching the special features of, of you know, as I just showed you, I got The Shining on 4K. Mm-hmm. And I was watching the special features and a lot of people were like, yeah, he knew from the get-go he was going to change the story. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's upsetting. Because I thought he just did it just because he wanted to spite Stephen King. But it sounded like he just wanted he the way he saw the film going, he had to change it. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. That? Yeah. Anyway, but we're not talking about The Shining. No. We're talking about A Clockwork Orange. So, all right. So, a quick <laughs> synopsis of A Clockwork Orange. Um, Alex and his droogs, his gang. Um, Alex being the main character. Right. Is Malcolm McDowell. And they, they are a gang who you know, does mischief. And when I say mischief, that makes it sound a little lighthearted. It's not lighthearted. It's, not, it's yeah. the furthest thing away from that because they'll go break into people's houses. They'll, you know, they'll they, hurt people. They beat up people. They rape women. They, mm-hmm. I mean, it's terrible. And, and Malcolm McDowell was saying that the most boring day of shooting was when they had to do that fight scene with the other gang. With the Billy Boy? Yeah, because really? it was just boring because nothing extraordinary was happening. It was just like a fight scene between... You know these two rival youth it, gangs. In Tim, that's not interesting, and I can get that because it's it not particularly interesting. I mean, it definitely. Well, and I feel like out of all the scenes, that one didn't last as long as some of the other like hyper violent scenes yeah. throughout the movie. Yeah. Anyway, so as I mentioned, they are delinquents and they're horrible people, and they go around and they do horrible things, and one day. <laughs> Um, after beating up half of his crew, Alex and his droogs, because Alex, uh, you know, kind of humiliates and beats up a couple of guys in his crew. Yeah, because, you know, um, Georgie wants to, they don't want to do petty theft anymore. Yeah. They want to do, you know, uh, what do they call it, big man yeah. things. They they kind of want to break, break the mold. They kind of want to, you know, go off and do other things. Mm-hmm. Not the stuff we've always been doing. Yeah. But, Alex finds comfort in what they've always been doing. He likes it. He's good at it. Whatever. And so he kicks Georgie into a river, kicks Dim into a river, and Mm -hmm. then cuts Dim's hand. Mm -hmm. And then the status quo was... Right. And so on their next venture out, they decide to set him up. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it was was Georgie's idea. Yeah. And the one... Uh, which in the book is an is an older woman, like an elderly woman, and uh, in this one it's a younger. I would say in her like forties. Yeah, and um, she told Stanley Kubrick she does yoga, and that's why she's doing yoga. Oh, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and Alex kills her with a giant, <laughs> with, um, a, a penis sculpture. Um, <laughs> Which they thought was so funny the way it rocked because it didn't just rock back and forth. It like would double rock in the front and then go back and then double rock and then go back. Well, and how Michael McDowell was playing with it. Yeah. Because – and how he's – you know, and it's works for the scene because she's like, don't touch that. And he's – oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And, and, but that's the funniest thing. And everywhere they go, um, is, there's erotic art mm-hmm. everywhere, right? Yeah, in the, and, in the apartments that Alex lives in with his parents. And in the, the house with the author and his wife. And then in this, the, the, the woman with the cats, right? It's mm-hmm. Oh, and the milk bar. 
Right. There, there's erotic art everywhere. And so they were trying to convey that in the future, erotic art will look, will be as if you had, you know, like a like a Van Gogh on the wall. It's the same. Right. We right. should mention that this happens in a dystopian near future. Yeah, it is a kind of thing. It is in quote the future, right? We mm-hmm. don't know how far. Uh, we we can kind of tell by the way you know things are set up. Like his his comforter is sort of that weird mm-hmm. uh, triangly puffy sort of thing, and you know his car, um, yeah, which we only see for one scene. Yeah, which. We'll get there. Uh, (laughs) I I want to talk about the rear projection. But um, so anyway, so he kills her. Right. And so brilliant the way they did it when he comes when he comes down on her face with with the sculpture. And they flash the paintings. Yeah. With the painting with the mouths. Mm -hmm. Right. So cool. Right. Anyway, he gets caught. He goes to jail. Right. Mm -hmm. The first year he spends in jail is sort of innocuous. We don't really. We don't really get to know a lot of what happened to him in that first year. But the second year... He's he's wanting to get out. Right. And to prove he wants to get out, they go, well, you can you can get a chance to be a part of this study. That'll get you out. The, yeah, it'll get you out. And, and I love that they repeated, you'll be a free man in a fortnight. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like two weeks. And so what they do is by using... Um, certain medicines and visuals they have him create negative associations uh with these images and acts and mm-hmm. of, of violence and, and sexual sex. you know <clears throat> themes and uh, sexual imagery and you know and violent imagery violent acts and mm-hmm. what they do is they they stick him with this medicine and he gets really violently ill um, and by the time the medicine works its magic and gets him to that violently ill space, they show him these images and he associates two together. Okay. That's mm-hmm. essentially what it is. That's the psychology of the study of what it is. So. Oh, okay. He, once he gets out, because it works, they test it and we'll get there. Yes. Because uh, this is just a brief thing. Yes. He gets out. And the first time he gets in an altercation, it's with the the lodger in his house. He goes to hit him, but and he, he can't. He can't do it. And his stomach starts hurting, and he starts belching, and he starts you know, dry heaving, and he can't. <laughs> he can hardly move, and and that's when the audience, unfortunately, you're like, oh. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now the audience is sucked in, and now we're like, oh man. Now we feel bad for him. Alex. Oh, no. And then that's when he meets um, Dim. Oh, yeah, because he gets assaulted by the oh, hobos. The, those hobos, right. And because then, the hobo in the beginning of the film meets up with him again, asks him for money. And then he realizes who he is. Right. Yeah, and then, um, and then Dim and Georgie save him indirectly. Right. Didn't mean to save him, but once they realize who he is, they're like, oh, come with us, you know. Mm-hmm. And then they try to drown him or whatever. Um, so the creme de la creme is when he is walking out of that that field where Georgie and Dim try to kill him or whatever. No. He comes upon this house. Well, it's the house of the author. And that two uh, years well we kinda kinda yachted over. Well, because we're gonna get there. Yeah. And and that man ends up recognizing him too. Now I had mentioned to Rain beforehand, I really want to get this out before we start because it's gonna piss him off that I know this and he doesn't. Um <laughs> 
is the man at the end of the film who assists um, the author, you know, carries him up and down the stairs. Not only was he Mr. Olympian or Mr. Universe. Oh, shit. He was Darth Vader. He's Darth Vader. Motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> His name is uh, David Prowse, and he was Darth Vader. Did you know he did not know they were going to dub over his voice? That sucks. He thought he was going to be the voice of uh, Darth Vader. Um, but because he, he sounds like this. Yeah, he sounds like Bane. Yeah, they were like, that's not menacing at all. And then they yeah. got James Earl Jones. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. Motherfucker. I, like, <sighs> as soon as they said it, I was like, shit, I got to write that down. Because <laughs> well, I, see, I had never seen what he looks like before. And so, and that, they were really glad that he did this movie so people know what he looks like. Well, well, this was before Star Wars. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, of course, the, the commentary was, you know, 30 years after the fact, so. Yeah, that's um, true. Is he still alive? Yep. Yeah. He's, I, I, because I looked it up, he was born in 1935. He's still alive. Yeah. So he's in his, like, 80s. Yeah. Damn. I know. Anyway. Anyway. So. I, I do want to say, though, I love his character's name, Julian. Oh, Julian? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And he looks like Austin. Well, he dresses like Austin Powers, but he looks like Lou Ferrigno. The dude is jacked. <laughs> jacked. Yeah. Yeah, because he was uh, he was Mr. Universe or whatever. Yeah. Uh, before some, Yeah, some bodybuilder yeah. In, the, in the 70s. Anyway. Right. So, um, unfortunately, Alex either doesn't realize where he is. No, he, he does. He remembers. Or isn't really thinking about what he's doing. But in the bath, when they let him in, he starts singing, singing, singing in, in the, the rain. rain. Yeah. And the look, I mean, I wish I'd written the actor's name down. Uh, the, the, the man who plays the author. Uh, his face, um, when he hears Alex singing, singing in the rain, is like he's having a stroke, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's having a seizure because he's just, he can't believe this guy's in his house, right? Uh, Patrick McGee. Thank you. So Patrick McGee is, I mean, his, he thought he was going over the top and Kubrick said, no, it's perfect, right? Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they, they drug him, they put him in the house, uh, they put him upstairs, lock him in the room, mm-hmm. and they play Beethoven's Ninth. Now, the reason this is so important is that's what they use as a background music for their, for their study at the prison for mm-hmm. the negative associations. And so now, unfortunately, Alex. his favorite thing in the world is now... You know, his worst enemy. He mm. is now being tortured by this Beethoven's Ninth. And so they know that, right? Mm-hmm. Somehow. Well, he tells them. Okay, right. Because they're, they're interviewing him. Oh, right, right, to, right. To kind of lure him into a false sense of security. Oh, right, 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 right. And he's like, you know, they played Beethoven. And she's like, oh, so all Beethoven? And he's like, well, no, just the Ninth. Yeah. And so. And so, right. And so he chucks himself out the window, uh, almost dies. Um, gets honored, right? Because mm-hmm. now this has come out that the prison has done this to him, right? Has mm-hmm. changed his psychology, is is, you know, brainwashed him in a way. And is going to give him reparations or whatever, like Yeah, he's gonna get a comfy desk job for the government. And we're gonna leave it there because I want to save the ending for later. Yes. So anyway, my favorite scenes. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Alright, first off, singing in the rain. I love that. Right? Like that scene in particular? Yeah. I, uh, the initial scene at the beginning of the movie? Yeah. Really? It's one of my all-time favorites. Here's why. Okay. So the book isn't like that. The book is just they, you know, they they hurt the husband, they rape the wife, right? Okay. 
And while listening to the commentary, Malcolm McDowell, he was so tired. You know, they had been doing all this shooting and they're exhausted. And, you know, they're like, dude, I can't find like, how is how are we going to do this and make it compelling? Right. Because if it, I mean, you yeah. know, it's not enough. Right. Like this stuff that we're doing isn't enough. And and so Kubrick asked him, he goes, well, can you dance? And he goes, can I dance? And then he starts doing Singing in the Rain. And he goes, perfect, that, you know? Uh-huh. And then that's what they did. And so it makes the scene so much more disturbing because they know exactly what they're doing. They don't care. They're enjoying themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, because Dim is kind of doing almost like, like a hype. Yeah, like a hype man, yeah, yeah. echoing like certain lines. Exactly. And it's so brilliant. And <laughs> my favorite thing Malcolm said about the scene was the actress uh, said, you know, today you're going to realize I'm a natural redhead. <laughs> anyway, so which that's I mentioned off mic, but I'm going to bring it up later about that. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So anyway, I love that scene. Um, and from a technical standpoint, I really love the um, the scene where they start their experiment. Right. Mm hmm. Because he really had to have his eyes pried open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was only for 10 minutes. That's how long he was in the chair. Um, they just did some movie magic to make it look like he was in there longer. Um, but that was a real a real ophthalmologist, a real doctor who would... It was dripping the... Well, and applied the, the numbing on his eyes because the metal would... Really, and he huh. did scratch his cornea because usually when they use that, your eyes don't move. But he was moving his eyes back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. When they first do it, I noticed his pupil was all the way. No one could see what I'm doing, but it was all the way down. Yeah. And then he, his eye. Yeah, and came. he kept and he kept moving his eyes back and forth and stuff, and you know, and with the metal being there, it'll scratch your cornea, and so he scratches cornea, and so <laughs> that sucks. But he couldn't feel it at first because of the numbing, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so from a technical standpoint, I really like that, right? And I. And, you know, just the the fact that, you know, the, the master shot is of the doctors in the very, very back of the mm-hmm. auditorium, right? And then third would be testing if it worked. You know, with all of the doctors, all the psychologists, all the scientists and all – and even his like – I don't know what you call it, a, a CO or something? Uh, oh, the – Because he works at the prison. Oh, the, the officer yeah. that – transfers him to the yeah. hospital. Yeah, Even yeah. he's there. And his reactions are so great in that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, his facial reactions to everything that's going on. You know, I really enjoyed that as well. So, I mean... Eh. And, of course, the ending. I love the ending. So Yeah, well, yeah, I really want to save the ending as well. Yeah. Um, so, one of my favorite scenes will probably have to be... And, like, don't think of this as a cop-out, but the opening... That opening shot of just mm-hmm. Michael Medow's face with this just stoic look, yeah. his falsy eyelashes yeah. on, and it just zooms out. Like, y- yeah. It's so beautifully done because the scene is telling you so much without saying anything. And it's the Kubrick stare, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we see this again in The Shining. Oh, when, see when it, Jack is just like staring. We see it in Full Metal Jacket mm-hmm. uh, with Vincent D'Onofrio. Um He's really good at this, right? Yeah. And 
I love the he toasts the audience. Like he brings his drink up mm-hmm. um, as if to say, get ready. No. Right? Um, because he, it's to no one. Like in terms of like the diegesis of the scene, he to- there's no one there. Mm-hmm. to toast to. He's doing it to us. Yeah, because right? yeah, Michael McDowell's looking right at the camera. Yeah, I mean, there's people on the sides of them. Straight down the barrel. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I love that scene. The only set they built, by the way. Everything, everything else was um, pre-existing locations. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And also, everything was lit by one source lighting, and it was lighting you could see. So, let's say there were some lamps in this in this room that they're uh-huh. filming in, that's what's lighting the scene, are those oh. lamps. Right? There was no other off-camera lights that they would use. Kubrick liked to use one-source lighting. Oh, okay. And it's scattered I feel like I learned that movie. when we did the noir episode and I learned about the killing, mm-hmm. that he used the overhead lighting. Yeah. Yeah, to... he, he likes to... He doesn't like to mess with other lighting. Like, I mean, if it's good enough to light the room, it's good enough to light the scene. Right. You know... I'm going to do my sidebar. You know, that's what they did for Bad Times at the El Royale. Because really? they built that entire, like, that that whole thing is a set. That's cool. Like, the whole thing. They used, they only went one place to do an outside shot. But everything else, mm-hmm. like, even John Hamm running across the parking lot when it's raining, that's the set. And since they built this massive set, <clears throat> they're like, how are we going to light this? Because mm-hmm. they'd given it a roof. And so they used the lighting that they installed as the lighting for the yeah. film. Which, I mean, makes more sense than to actually use, you know, stage lighting and stuff like that. Right. Anyway, uh, yeah, just wanted to throw no, that. No, that's neat. I didn't yeah. know. Um, my, other, <clears throat> my other favorite scene, and just because I, f- I, I finally saw the comedy in it. <coughs> excuse me. Because like I mentioned last week, the first time I ever saw this movie... I didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, get the, did I. I didn't get the point. I didn't get the message. Um, and so this time I saw the comedy in, in this scene in particular. It's when Alex is, you know, he'd lost his trial and he's getting booked into jail. Mm-hmm. And all he can say is yes, sir. No, sir. Yeah. And he's saying it very loudly and I'm not going to scream it into the mic, but you know, like, do you have, you know, he's asking him, have you ever had glasses or contact lenses? No, sir. <laughs> and just how Michael McDowell is yeah. very confidently like, no, sir. Yes, sir. But what killed me is so, and so this is the point I wanted to bring up. The 70s in filmmaking got away with so much. Mm-hmm. And I mean that. I know. The, I think I know a part. Is it the box? What box? Oh. Um, he is. The part where he drops trowel and the box is barely covering his penis. And then they move the box. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh no, he he moves. Nope. They move the box. They I move. watched it today. So oh. check it out. They they have this box. You're like, oh okay, they're not going to show us his penis. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. as they're putting his effects right. into it. And then they move the box. <laughs> and it's sort of a it's sort of pulling the rug out from under you, right? Because mm-hmm. you think they're not going to, and then I was like, eh. Well, you almost <laughs> see it in your favorite scene, the scene in the rain scene, yeah. when he pulls his pants down. Yeah. His shirt is barely covering barely, it. Yeah. Anyway, um, but what I found so funny. Is you know so they're doing his. I'm going to use the term you use. His CEO is doing a body cavity search. Yeah, and you know that Michael McDowell's penis is right in that guy's face, and he, Michael McDowell is still having to do the scene. Yeah, of going no sir, and it's. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it's because <laughs> he brings that up in the commentary. Michael McDowell does because the 
the the guy, his name's uh, Nick Redman, uh, okay. is a film historian. He was asking him a whole bunch of questions, and he was like, "Now, was how was that doing that?" He goes, "That guy was way more embarrassed than I was, you know, because <laughs> really? I mean, because he's got to look, yeah, and in, in, in into my into my rectal cavity, and, uh, and I don't, yeah. <laughs> so." That's that's his problem, not mine. So he's like, was so I embarrassed? Funny. No. <laughs> Dude, because, like, I don't know what it was, but I was just chuckling. I wasn't, like, dying laughing, but I was chuckling the entire time, especially yeah. when he, uh, you know, when he asks him about, you know, what church do you go to? And he's like, um, the C of E, sir. And he's like, the Church of England. Church of England, sir. And just, it cracked me up. Um now, did they film in England? Yeah. Okay. I had a feeling because it looked very much like England. But Yeah, actually not too far from Kubrick's house. That's why he likes to do that. He doesn't like to shoot very far from his house. Where, where's Kubrick from? He's from England. He's from – really? Mm-hmm. I didn't – wait, so he's British? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. I just learned something new. I, mean, I think he is. You know. uh, at least at the time he was because um, I think Lolita oh so I forgot about Lolita you're right Lolita so this would be a sixth one if I'm doing this correctly um, Lolita, they were saying Lolita was his first English film that he shot and so it obviously wasn't his last um, I don't know he was born in Manhattan Oh, yeah, there you go. So he was just probably living in Yeah. English. Well, anyway, he, he doesn't like to shoot far from his house. <laughs> and so they were like, yeah, that's just like four blocks away from his house. They were, they were, Malcolm McDowell was like, yeah, when we shot there, yeah, that's just like four blocks away from his house. Or so, and that's, it's just, it's made me chuckle because I'm just like, who cares, man? So something I really want to talk about, and you mentioned it last week, and then I caught it in my rewatch, is they use a lot of Slavic slang yes with now, cockney slang so when so, malcolm mcdowell was talking about this he said it was a mixture of russian and yiddish okay but when i was reading about it they said it's russian and english so i don't know i i don't know who's right yeah see i read russian and english so as did well. I. yeah i'm gonna um, say that's right i am too um <laughs> but yeah and and that's why the book is so hard to read so in in, in this dystopian future well, I wouldn't say dystopian. Yeah, dystopian future. Dead, but yeah. Um, why Russian? I don't know. Um, it's 71. We're still in the Cold War. Can you look up when the book was written? I can, when, sir. When, I want to I say... When the it, book was published, I guess. I feel like I read that the book was published in the early 60s. Okay. That's still Cold War. Give me just... Five whole seconds. Oh boy. Anyway, um, 62. 62. Yep, that's still Cold War so, era. So maybe they were thinking like that the Russians were going to invade England or, you know, have more of an impact, a negative impact than we thought. Maybe, I don't know. It's sort of like in Firefly, they speak Mandarin. You know what I mean? But we, but we, the audience, never hear that. You, uh, audience, ever hear what? Them actually speak Mandarin. They speak Mandarin all the time. In Firefly, that's how they can swear. Or was they it like? It or was it? Or was it like with Blade Runner? Oh, Man- yeah, Blade Runner. They don't speak Mandarin. Yeah, but it's implied that they're that they that they're speaking Mandarin to each or other. Japanese. I don't remember which one. Any one of them. Right. I don't want to be Blade Runner. I right. don't want to be stereotypical. But like in 
what I'm saying in in Firefly they do speak Mandarin, right? Okay. And it's it's sort of that you know the now they coexist in a more substantial way than we do now, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what they were trying. To, maybe that's what Anthony was trying to do. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I well, think. I think I have written down why he chose to do that. Well, why you you talk? Why you're searching for it? Because that also makes sense with like, you know, the the building structure of like Alex's uh, the apartment he lives in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very. It doesn't look like it belongs in England. You know. Um, yeah, a lot of things are sort of looking like that. That they they don't look like anywhere else. Yeah. Right, especially even the way his mom dresses. Mm-hmm. Right, her, her hair changes color. Yeah, the first time she has purple hair. The first time we see her. Yeah, and then like bright green hair when we see her after he gets out of prison. Yeah, I mean it's, it, yeah, it's supposed to give you that futuristic feel. I guess that quasi futuristic feel the seventies had. I think the only futuristic feel I ever got from the movie is when he when they go to the author's house for the first time mm-hmm. and his wife is sitting in that egg yeah couch yeah that I was like okay that's looks like a like a um sleep pod or something like a men in black chair or something yeah <laughs> um I'm glad you brought up that scene again because I do have where we get the title from and it's okay. from that scene okay um because yeah, I always wondered about that so in in the book when they when they break into the author's house, the author's working on a book, and the book's called A Clockwork Orange. Oh. And Alex reads excerpts from it um, before enduring the, the assault. Oh, okay. Right? And A Clockwork Orange is um, rhyming Cockney slang for, for queer, but not as in homosexual. Queer is in strange and uncanny. Oh, okay. And so it kind of encapsulates the whole narrative and the whole mood and tone of the story. That's very strange. It's very strange, right? A clockwork orange. So, and what I mean when I say rhyming slang, I know a lot of people don't know what that is. Um, If you've ever seen um, Ocean's Eleven. Right. um, Don Cheadle plays a cockney you know, explosive expert or whatever, right? Yes. He says, we're going to be in real Barney, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, what is it? He goes, Barney Rubble. Trouble. We're going to be in trouble, right? Barney Rubble, trouble. So when you say, we're in real Barney, Barney Rubble rhymes with trouble, therefore he just has to say Barney, right? Oh, uh, okay. And okay. so okay. it's, it's that. that rhyming slang. Mm-hmm. It's super complicated to learn. It's <laughs> super complicated to put into practice, but if you grow up in it, obviously it's super easy. So um, now the the odd and the, the ironic thing about using the Cockney slang is Malcolm McDowell chose not to speak in a Cockney accent. No, he uh, speaks talked about very... It's the northern sort of upper echelon status of British like, way of speaking. Like, like from like Essex, it, right? It's like the more proper way to speak, right? Okay. It's the is the northern way and that's how he really speaks right Mm -hmm. and so he decided not to do cockney because he wanted his speech to sound sophisticated but his actions not to be right right? so when people talk to him it brings more of that intelligence because Alex is very intelligent he loves Beethoven he's obviously well read Mm -hmm. he speaks you know with a proper accent yet he's a complete monster 
Right. Right. And there's that juxtaposition there as well. Mm -hmm. So, which is, you know, a good segue for the next point that I want to bring up is the fact of his love for Beethoven. Yeah. You know, as we were talking about off mic, um, you know, you know, the first time he plays Beethoven in his, in his room, he is listening to the ninth symphony because mm-hmm. we don't really hear him listening to any other Beethoven pieces, right? Just the Ninth Symphony? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so he's listening to the Ninth Symphony. And I have to say, on the coolest little um, cassette tape ever, that it's this big. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it's, it's like, it's the teeniest, tiniest one. The one that you would use for, like, an old school tape recorder. Uh, anyway. And he's listening to it, but he's envisioning all these very horrible things, you know, like a mountain exploding, um, you know, and and you see these flashes of, you know, the mountain exploding, like... Oh, I really liked that. Like him, like, as a vampire. And we kind of see later um, more of his, sort of the way he, he interprets and imagines things is when he's reading the Bible. Oh, yeah, and he's... He's the bad guy. Yeah. Right. He's the one whipping Jesus. He's the one, you know, killing the Christians or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's <laughs> it's it's sort of like he also has those dancing Christ statues in mm-hmm. his in his house, right? Like yeah. he is. It's it's so funny. Hang on, I had that written down. I just I had to mention the dancing Christ. <laughs> oh, yeah, and they're all they all have like their fists up too, right? Yeah, it's almost like they took four. Christ's off the crucifix and just glued them together <laughs> almost they're not quite in that stance but they're pretty close yeah right and <laughs> also I'd like to mention that um, it this is a terrible segue um, but just like how the lighting is is what you're seeing like that's the only thing lighting the scene mm-hmm. they didn't do ADR either so all of the dialogue was, sh- was captured live Right, all the sound was captured live. Meaning they didn't have to go back and dub over it. Okay. Right, because something was too loud or whatever. And Malcolm McDowell said it was one of the first movies they used those tiny microphones in. Really? Yeah. So he had the so certain scenes he had a tiny microphone hidden in his costume. Yeah. Oh. Just so they can capture the sound, right? So they can get his. um, So if you watch the movie really closely, which you really don't have to because you know. All that's captured live, so they didn't have to go back and redo it anyway. Right. That was, I thought that was super interesting. Anyway, yeah. Um, but uh, but so like the other point I wanted to bring up with Beethoven, mm-hmm. and then we can you know move on to another part is take your time. You know, Beethoven also plays in these very hyper violent, hypersexual scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, so like when his gang and Billy Boy's gang get into a fight, it's playing "Oh to Joy," isn't it? <laughs> well, okay, maybe not Ode of Joy. No, that's Ode of Joy. Anyway, um, you know, then when he, you know, beats up Dim and Georgie, it's playing, you know, it's slow motion and it's playing one of Beethoven's pieces. Well, when he Kubrick loves classical music. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, that's what all of 2001 is. And yeah. that's what Barry Lyndon is. And, you know, I mean, it's... Well, and, like, the the point I want to bring up is, like, that, you know, and it goes back to, you know, when Alex is alone in his room listening to Beethoven, you know, and he's envisioning all these horrible things. It's almost like, to him, 
which I mean, my theory is probably well, not really my theory. My explanation may not make sense, but like to him, the things he does is worth. I wouldn't say worthy. But, like, Beethoven's music goes in turns. Well, I get what you're saying. I think the way I interpreted it is that Beethoven brings him so much joy. These are the other things that bring him joy. Oh, okay. Right? Because when he's in the chair. Murder, rape, pillage, and mayhem. Yeah, because when he's in the chair and he's seeing all this and hearing Beethoven, then that's when he starts to have, you know, this visceral reaction. You know, I'm... And I love the line that he says, you know, it's a sin to be, you know, Beethoven, you know, Beethoven never did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Stop playing it with all this terrible th- stuff. Yeah. But that's what he does. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so let's see. Um, let's talk about how the film switches rhythm and tone so fast, right? So okay. 45 minutes go by, he gets caught. Right. Now you're in a different movie, um, pretty much, right? I mean, by by that I just mean things aren't happening as fast, mm-hmm. and you're not feeling as tense anymore. So scenes are now longer, mm-hmm. right? And... Not only are they longer, but, you know, in terms of things happening, not a whole lot, right? And right. things that are happening are through dialogue. And so after he gets caught, I mean, it's just like, you know, I walked into a different movie, mm-hmm. um, which is super cool that it can that it can switch like that on a dime. Right. Right. Um, of course, that's when he gets put into prison and then blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. Um, let's see what else. I have a ton of stuff written down still. I <laughs> well, have I have a page and a half still. Well, and, and I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, I could see that because from the time he gets captured, um, interrogated and, you know, abused by police, tried and then booked into jail, it does feel like this kind of shift in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, from this, you know, Kid who who never thought he would ever get caught, especially when, you know, his parole officer is in his house warning him, like, I know what you're doing. You need to stop. Yeah, he's like a truancy officer. I don't, like, I don't know what he is, but that scene is weird. Oh, yeah. No, it's super weird, and it's super funny. And, like, after after he hits him in the nuts, he he drinks. <laughs> yeah, he drinks the water in the denture glass. Yeah, and he didn't realize what Until was the very it. end, and he's like, like oh, oh, God. Uh, Right. Um, um, yeah, that guy's really strange. Anyway, go ahead. But yeah, no, you know, because, you know, so, you know, it's like Alex feels like, you know, I could, I'll never get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he does get caught. And then it becomes kind of like this. Just It just becomes this movie of, you know, now he's in jail. What's going on with him now? You know, like mm-hmm. he's leading, you know, he's, he's turning the the projector for the lyrics as they're singing the hymns in church. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's sort of like an overhead projector, but with a, I guess, a thinner sheet of plastic so he can roll it, mm -hmm. right? Um, And it projects the lyrics on the 
No, that's great. Anyway, yeah. I didn't have to explain to you or the audience what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, that was super old school, but, you know, it's yeah. not because it was of the time, but, yeah. <laughs> anyway. um, right. So, I already talked about the oxygen tank. Um, okay. I already talked about that because I wanted to, you know, get to the Darth Vader stuff for you. To, um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Would you, Rain Wayland, mm-hmm. like to talk about the ending? I would like to talk okay, about the ending. Okay, great. Um... Of course, this is once he's in the hospital after he jumped out of the window from, you know, going back to, they call it home because it has a a light-up sign mm-hmm. in the front of their house. It's just his home, right, yeah. um, where the author lives. And we get a sort of, you know, we we get a phrase and then we get an image that don't match, right? Mm-hmm. And... The, the Are you talking phrase, about his psychologist? No, I mean we're talking about um, his the the last line of the film. Oh, and so seeing the image and hearing the the dialogue, the image defines the dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. So, and in the book. That's also how it ends, right? Um, but we'll get there because not really. But okay. Um, and you know, it's it's of him, you know, I guess having sex with this woman in this pile of snow with <laughs> with lines of people just watching. Yeah, and they're dressed kind of like you know, like, like in a like from a Charles Dickens. Yeah, like a Charles. Exactly. I was, I was just about to say that. Yeah, and he said, "I'm, I'm I was cured, all right." Mm-hmm. You know, seeing the image and hearing that makes it seem that jumping out of that window knocked all that stuff out of his mind. And now the negative associations are over. Mm-hmm. Right. And that he's back to normal or back to where we saw him in the beginning. Right. right? Which as a sort of sick, demented person, I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> like, oh, cool. He's, he's back. They <laughs> He's not going to get sick anymore when he does stuff. Um, well, I mean, and they kind of. You know, leading up to that, they kind of allude to it that something's wrong. Well, not something's wrong. Something isn't wrong. You mm-hmm. know, you know, he's talking with the psychologist, and she's like, "I'm going to show you pictures with a phrase, and oh, yeah. that I need you to answer them." And he's like, "Oh, okay." Like, she's like, "Yeah, how would you answer them? Don't really think. Whatever comes to your head." All improvised, by the way. Really? Yeah. The only time Kubrick let it slide. Really? Because. They had done it a few times, and Malcolm McDowell was like, dude, I am so sick of these answers. Can I just say whatever I want? He goes, let's try it. And then it ended up with what they were using. So Yeah, I really love the whole, like, the, the one with the watch. Like, you sold me a crummy, crummy watch. I want my money back in his hole. We can take that watch and shove it up your ass. <laughs> um, but, you know, they allude to, like, right. that's not something a cured person would say. Right. They're like, huh. You know, and then I feel like they really see it when um, the governor is coming to apologize and he's cutting a steak and he's opening his mouth um, yeah, to feed the, him. That was his idea, too, the, the popping of his mouth really? to open. <laughs> I love Michael now. Um, he's so great. And, you know, again, another thing like a cured person, you know, from what we've seen, what their idea of what a cured person looks like mm-hmm. wouldn't be that kind of a just a prick yeah. about it. You know. Right. And 
you know, obviously, and then at the very end, you know, like we get that image and we get I'm cured all right, and then it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, with Gene Kelly singing in the rain, <laughs> and <laughs> so. Um, Malcolm McDowell had mentioned it in the commentary, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I did know that it was either the American version or the English version of, or the British version of A Clockwork Orange had an extra chapter added. Um, like Malcolm the- McDowell said it's because the, the publisher said you have to do this, right? Okay. Because that's how the book ends, okay? Mm-hmm. With the I'm cured all right. And... There's another chapter where he actually is. He has a wife and child now, and he has completely turned his life around, and he's not doing all those horrible things anymore. And he's blah, not blah. a sociopath. No. And and it's sort of a downer, right? Like, if you're someone like me who's like, that's lame, you know? <laughs> I don't want a happy ending. No, I hate happy endings. Anyway, um, <laughs> there's too many of those, like... If I want a happy ending, I'll watch You Got Mail, all right? Like, says the person wearing a Powerline shirt. Oh, yeah, dude. Powerline forever, dude. Still waiting for that uh, album to drop since dude, 97, dude. We could do a whole episode <laughs> over a goofy movie, and we I could. would love it dearly. I'm sorry if everyone just heard that. Wow. My dad was just texting me. Are you saying if we all just heard that? We all just heard that. Anyway. Um, So anyway, according to to Michael McDowell, um, Anthony Burgess was told by the publisher, you need to add a chapter. Okay. And I don't remember which one it was. Whichever one it was, Kubrick didn't pick, pick up that book. He picked up the one without that chapter. Okay. And so it's still the most faithful adaptation he's ever done. Mm-hmm. He just didn't have the one with that extra chapter in it. Right. Right? And, you know, I'm really glad that he didn't pick up that. I mean, he probably wouldn't have used it anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I could definitely foresee Stanley being like, no. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, I want to I talk about something really sure. quickly. So... In in the in the in the final fifteen minutes of the movie, when the author knows who Alex is, mm-hmm. you know, um, I gotta say, <laughs> I understand that this guy is like the character is very upset with what happened to him and his wife, but this dude <laughs> does not know how to not be. Um, that's the word I'm looking for. Like, he's not very subtle about it. Yeah. Right? He's yelling at him. They talk about that. They're like, would you like some wine? You know, and he's like pouring the wine. He goes, have another glass. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's all up in his personal space. And, yeah. Um, and what I think is so funny is Alex knows something's wrong with this situation. Yeah. So, you know, he grabs the bottle really quickly and he's like, oh, yeah, 1969. So... It's a good one. And he puts it back down, and then he's trying to check if there's anything in the... Yeah. It's a good color, too. And he takes, like, a tiny little sip. It's actually not a good color, because that's not what that wine would look like. It would be a deeper red, wouldn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. I don't know anything about red. Anyway. um, But I love the line. So, you know, so because he tells him, you know, I've got friends coming over who they're going to talk to you about what happened, what happened to you. That way we can make sure this never happens to anyone again. I will say that he... The author kept his cool with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just this look of like sheer like I hate you. Yeah. While they're interviewing Alex is gold as well. Um, but I love the line where you know Alex is explaining like you know. I, you know, I get very sick and I just I have to get rid of this feeling you know by death or you know, and you know the lady who's writing all this down, she's like, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, I can't really describe it. 
but I just feel like very soon something very bad is going to happen to me. <laughs> and then, bam. But, yeah. The, and, the, the drug, whatever drug they used on him, finally hit him. It's Yeah, and that's just, and that's such great comedic timing, mm-hmm. right? So that part's really funny. And they were saying that there is a sponge uh, in between him and the plate. Because he would have broken his nose, right? Oh, he yeah. He slammed it on there like that. Uh, but I do want to say, and this brings us all the way back to our film noir episode. Try to think back, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> all the way then. All right? So I mentioned a film then called M, uh, Fritz Lang's uh, 1931 film starring Peter Lorre. Didn't we talk about that? Yeah. Back then. And... How they were able to discern or, I guess, discover who the murderer was mm-hmm. by his whistle. Right. Right? And this is sort of a play on that, right? All those years later, mm-hmm. he's in the bath singing, singing in the rain, right? The author would have absolutely no idea who he was otherwise because he was wearing a hat and a mask, mm-hmm. right? So he doesn't know who he is. Right. Uh, if he hadn't have done that... He'd be free and clear, right? Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I feel like Alex, you know, he knew where he was, but I don't think he knew what he was doing. Like, I think he was just getting relaxed, and that just happens to be the song. It's one of his favorites, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> song he sings when he's relaxed or when he's assaulting people. Yeah. Which you could argue, what's the difference? For Alex, <laughs> anyway. Um, seems like he's relaxed in most situations. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, Cools a cucumber with his uh, snake named Basil. Yeah. Which I McDowell doesn't like snakes, by the way. Really? Yeah. Well, it felt like he didn't really want to hold it when he picked it up. Nope. Well, then, then, then that explains why he the immediate next scene where you see the snake is on its tree. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, he doesn't like snakes. Well, but anyway, I mean, um, yeah. man, I love this movie so much. And like you, when I saw it the first time, it was like 12 years ago. Or something like that. I was like 13, 14. And I saw it and I was like, this is good. I know it's good, but I don't get it. Right? Yeah. And I probably didn't even finish it. I bet what happened was my 14-year-old brain said, fun stuff's over. He's in jail and it's boring now. And then I probably turned it off. <laughs> I guarantee that's what I did. Because of that tonal shift. Mm-hmm. Right? And the rhythm shift. Uh, to longer in-depth scenes and more dialogue and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, ugh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I remember the first time I watched it, <clears throat> I uh, I finished it. Because um, I was like, you know, I've always heard things about this movie. Mm-hmm. What is this movie? So I finished it. But, yeah, I didn't understand it. I didn't get the point. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't understand that, you know, the point of this is... You know, and as I read today, much like what's the author's name? Anthony Burgess. Anthony Burgess. You know, as this being one of his many books in the search for goodness, mm-hmm. you know, because after Alex, well, do, while Alex is in jail, he's like, you know, I just want to be good, which uh, I'm pretty sure was a lie. Probably. He was just trying to say that to get out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and even them. You know, when when we see the test of the aversion therapy, um, you know, the the preacher even says, like, he's been robbed of his free will. You know, he yeah. may be good now, but he's not making these choices because he wants to make them. Right. He, his, his, his psyche and his body are telling him, 
no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was, you know, so at the time, I didn't get it. I was like, oh, yeah. okay. Now I get it. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. oh okay. But, uh, but now, yeah, I, I still love the movie. I was desperately trying to buy it. Mm-hmm. So when I rewatched it last night, I can always rewatch it. Yeah. Um, Best Buy didn't have any copies. No. Um, I didn't really feel like going to not Hastings. Well, they have a copy. So. I'm sure they do. But There's one. Because I'm a bougie bitch, I want it uh, in some form of collector's edition or anniversary edition. Oh, I ordered mine. Because I used to have one. From um, where? Amazon? Yeah. They have an anniversary edition? Yep. Yeah. 40th anniversary edition Blu-ray. It's the book. It's the book <sighs> Blu-ray. Two disc. It's pretty great. I used to have it. I sold it. I miss it. I'll buy it again. <laughs> Not sponsored by Amazon, but Amazon, please sponsor us. Two-day shipping. Oh, dude. Yeah, dude. Amazon Prime, that's my jam. <laughs> oh, Amazon Prime's <laughs> the best. Well, uh, is there anything else you would like to tell the people about A Clockwork Orange? Because I feel like we've really... You know, we've really... I don't want to, you know, just talk just to talk. Um, yeah. I really enjoy A Clockwork Orange. I really dig the, you know, the the style of Kubrick and I dig Malcolm McDowell's performance. Um, and I <laughs> want to tell people to get ready for next week. You know, oh, yeah. next week we got devil's rejects. Yeah. Uh, before, before we give a little tease on that, I do want to say, like I mentioned, the movie is fucked up, but it's one of those movies that you can't not look away. Like it's fucked up, but you still enjoy the movie. Yeah. You know, but anyway, yeah, a little tease for next week. Uh, we will be doing The Devil's Rejects. Um, I know a lot of people have been asking me if we're going to do a Halloween episode or some kind of scary episode. And we did a three-hour episode in season one over horror movies. So we're going to get a little bit more specific mm-hmm. with The Devil's Rejects. But on top of that, uh, me and Jeremy will be joined by Alex. That's right. And will be the first official guest of season two. Yeah. Which will be uh, fun to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure we can get one of these mics to be omnidirectional. I think that should be easy. But anyway, yeah. um, and who knows, I might talk into a horror movie for um, for after that as well. Um, yeah. And then we can just, you know, call it good after that. But we'll see. But yeah. Well, we hope uh, everyone enjoyed this week's episode and uh, go watch Clockwork Orange. Yeah. All right.